Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Believe Knicks podcast. I am Matthew Miranda, joined as always by Stacey Patton. And today we have a guest, but you have to wait to hear who the guest is while I get through my preamble and an ad read. But we're very excited about our guest today. We're excited, I think, just to have a show today because the Knicks last night played in Philadelphia. Just a very exciting game. It actually ended well, if you're a Knicks fan. Um, Lots, lots, lots going on in the Knicks universe. But I would be remiss if I did not tell you if I can survive it about Bet Online, who you may be familiar with. Bet Online says that basketball is back and bet I mean it's been back, but whatever. Basketball is back and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You will always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. And as your continued source for all sports wagering information, Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events, whether that's NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, or if you do the Lord's work and you love golf. Head to betonline.ag to join. Receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BELIEVE, that is spelled B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. Bet online where the game starts. What a lovely segue, because... When the game started last night, the main headline was who was starting, which was Quentin Grimes. Um, Tom Thibodeau kept us in suspense all day and then came out and put a little corsage on Quentin Grimes and sent him into the starting lineup. And people were appeased, I believe. Um, Seth, have you been following this Fournier versus Quentin Grimes starting news? Did you... Expect it ever to change? Does Tom Thibodeau... I feel like Tom Thibodeau does do things occasionally to vary, but it, it just never... Matt, uh, do you want to you intro Seth first? Holy shit. So, that was the surprise. Today's guest... <laughs> is, <laughs> today's guest um, is the godfather, the founder, the emancipator, and the liberator of PostingAndToasting.com. Um, he has also done a number of incredible beef history videos and is currently working at Secret Base, but he is allowed to talk about it, so we will ask him more about that later. Seth Rosenthal, a beacon of light in our lives. How are you doing, Seth? I am doing splendidly. Thank you. I feel like, you know, I like to go on podcasts when I'm invited, and of all the podcasts and podcast hosts I've ever joined, you are the best introer. That's right. This is why Stacy yeah. talks the rest of the pod because I have nothing left. That's literally <laughs> that's all well, I have. To know, that's a nice way of saying I don't know when to shut up. But <laughs> no, it's it's like hip hop where some people are just good at like the ad libs. No, I'm not I'm not agreeing with you, but in, in the universe <laughs> you created, you know, someone's just good at setting it up and doing the ad libs and the intros and stuff. And you know, if all you got is just uh, the intro, that's that's. Fine. I am a Marine. Yeah, and Seth, I gotta say, Sabrina Yonescu. I, I, oh, sorry, Terry, what did you say, Matt? I'm, I talked. I said, I'm, I'm the honest to your Yonescu. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope. Um, I hope they. I mean, I hope they keep her around, uh, Johannes. I hope she comes back. She was probably my favorite player to watch last year on Liberty. 
Me too. Um, Seth, I got to say, like, I got into posting and toasting. Remember the first article I read there was um, when they signed Sergio Rodriguez. That is a name. <laughs> and he had, like, six points and, a, and, like, six assists. But it was such a revelation because of the way he played. And that's what I started reading. And what really got me into, like, all this Knicks blog space was actually your writing. I, I really enjoyed uh, everything you put it, uh, posting and toasting. That's what really made me a fan. As long as, as well as, uh, it was a great community back in that time, you know, when they first had D'Antoni, uh, you know, Mari joined. Um, so uh, it's really an honor to have you on. And uh, yeah. It's, uh, well, thank you for saying so. That's very gratifying to hear. And I think that's a good entry point to both that era of posting and toasting and to Nick's fandom because like Sergio Rodriguez is one in a 50 name list of like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the point guard, you know, maybe like that, like anytime the Knicks got a guy who could like throw a rudimentary entry pass, it was like, Oh shit, it's over. We've done it. The savior has arrived. I mean, that I think was, when I my was light bulb player was Toure Murray for that. When I realized, okay, I was calling Toure Murray the savior. Maybe I went a little oh, bit I, too far. I was absolutely on board with that. And I think my the original for me might have been like Frank Williams, where it was like absolutely, absolutely. Frank Williams like throws a pocket pass, and I'm like, this is it. We got it. <laughs> we got the point guard. Um, but yeah, Trey Murray was that. Sergio Rodriguez was that. And then Jeremy Lin like actually was that for a second. But mm-hmm. anyway, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, it's it's nice and sort of weird when posting and toasting was an entry point for people to become Knicks fans um, because I don't know. That's like getting really into, I don't know, like Star Wars because you like played a Game Boy game. Oh, so I, I was my my Knicks fan predated that. I oh, okay, say good, that. good, thank God. But like, I I mean, I wasn't um I wasn't participating on like blogs or gotcha. all that craziness, and there's really PNT that got me into PNT, and um I'm an Eagles fan too. Sorry, I know probably uh not great for a lot of the listeners, but Bleeding Green Nation I remember was pretty good mm-hmm. too in that time. So mm-hmm. nice. So uh, well. We go ahead, say so you yeah, take it, you take it, you take it. No, you you had a question, so I was I can let you restate the question. I didn't on, really on get Grimes to it, but the that. question I was trying to ask without any success was Seth, um, were you looking were you particularly excited about seeing Quentin Grimes in place of Evan Fournier last night? And did you take anything away from the move in a larger sense? Because it seemed like I thought I I, I I was talking to Seth before we went on the air and like talking about how games this year have been more emotionally roiling than they have any right to be at this point so far. And last night, I think because I had a recap coming into like I was more mentally tuned into like what are people talking about and like what is the story like around this game. And there was such enormous investment, I think, from a lot of the fans about a couple of moves specifically, like replacing Fournier with Grimes, playing Randall with Obi, just showing you're able to make a change, Tom Thibodeau. And he did, but like it made everything in the game to me so heavy. Like by the end, I, I it was like, this is all a referendum. If they lose the game, he's never going to. Did you feel anything like that? Or was it just you've seen so many games, it's kind of another game? Yes. 
no, I, I felt invested in that same way. And in fact, that last thing you're describing, I hadn't really been able to articulate it or like put a finger on it yet. But yeah, there are moments when like if there's a cool lineup in the game that you want to stick around and like mm-hmm. someone dribbles the ball off their toe, it's like, oh, fuck, that's going to be in the plus minus. But like that shouldn't really count. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't really indicative of the way the lineup works. Or yeah, like yeah, yeah. travels, and it's like, no, 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 ignore that when when you look at the stats. But um, mm-hmm. yes, I think um, for a number of reasons that you know, there's there was the pregame thing, which was that Grimes was starting instead of Fournier, um, mm-hmm. and then there was the in-game thing where like, oh, we're actually doing a bunch of experimentation, partially because uh, Mitchell Robinson busted his knee or whatever. Um, which was also fascinating and in a way gratifying and sort of in a way invigorating and in another way terrifying because what if they mess up? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that, you know, I, like everyone else, was checking Twitter for two hours before the game to see who would start because I, like everyone else, had seen the rumors circulating that he was going to change the lineup. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah, I was since, I think, summer league since last season was uh, hopeful and excited that Quentin Grimes would get the opportunity to play with the first unit. I, I, I think Quentin Grimes is like, could be really good. Um, Mm -hmm. Like really good. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I think I derive that opinion that, that suspicion mostly from summer league, which is Mm -hmm. proof that I'm stupid and a sicko, but still, (laughs) um, and then, so, so that was, you know, that was exciting pregame and it was in a way, you know, rewarding and gave me some hope to see Thibodeau make that kind of call so early in the season. Um, but then when you reflect, you know, reflecting on that feeling like Grimes started, but he didn't really play. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't get that much time. And it was very clear that that move was, you know, when he was like, well, we're going to try a lot of things. He, that was, he, he meant it. That was a very pointed, like yeah. he played each shooting guard with the first unit at one point or another. And he, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like after the first quarter, maybe first 14 or 15 minutes, I, and then I saw this other people saying this on Twitter was like, Oh, I guess like, you know, Cam Radish is the odd man out and he's not going to play tonight. And then he got spin with the first, first unit. Mm-hmm. I think he closed the game. <laughs> it like, is, yeah. Thibodeau was very clearly like, okay, you got your Quentin Grimes start, but that doesn't mean he's my first option. It means I am genuinely doing like a casting call right now. But yeah, it was fun to see him mess mess around. Um, I'm not going to take that as gospel now. I'm not going to be, I'm not convinced that Tom Thibodeau, you know, has now totally opened up his rotation and is going to play small ball and like keep tinkering. But, um, and, and like you were getting at it is a little, uh, it puts you on edge for any good lineup to even get two minutes of opportunity because you want them to, you know, it's like, it's like when you're rooting for a rookie to get minutes and it's like, don't, please don't mess up except it's five people instead of one. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, that was fun. Like even if they lost that game, it would have been an interesting, hopefully a turning point, but at least an interesting like blip on the radar. Mm-hmm. Stacy, I've never had this experience, but I wonder if you felt it last night too. I felt watching Thibodeau experiment more and more like I imagine a child would feel if they're in the car and they realize their parent is drunk. Like 
it seemed to me like Thibodeau was okay. That's cool. Oh, that's okay. That's pretty. Di- How far are you taking this? Like, if that game had gone to overtime, Tibbs might have stood it up himself. You have been a long vocal supporter of Quentin Grimes, an advocate for the idea that he should be starting. Did you feel any? Did you feel relief that okay, it's finally happening, or did you feel? any different emotion because as Seth said, like the fact that Thibodeau did it once does not mean that it's going to happen like ever again. Like, did you see enough last night that it, it, it that it impacted your view of Thibodeau in any way? Uh, incrementally. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. It was more to me than just starting Grimes. Um, still Grimes only got 15 minutes, but there were a few notable developments, right? Part of this was because Mitchell Robinson got hurt. But he played, let's see, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 guys. Um, you take out Mitch and say, that's still 11. He doesn't do that. And that's another thing I wish they had done more because the, the strength of this roster is not top-end talent or it's not that your starters are amazing. Um, it's really the depth and versatility, right? Like They have three bigs, and I think all three are good. But they have very different strengths, right? Mitchell Robinson is a monster on the glass and the best rim protector. Um, Isaiah Hartenstein is a good rim protector who gives them more versatility on offense um, than either of the other two options. But um, obviously, he's strictly a drop big. Um, and he's um, he's better on the glass last night, um, albeit against the Philadelphia mm-hmm. team that was playing a little bit smaller. Um, but you know he obviously has those shortcomings. And then Sims is probably the most mobile and the best perimeter option. Um, and he sets better screens than Robinson, um, probably up there with Hartenstein. I think you can use all three. Like against a small ball, switchy team, Sims is a good option. Obviously, they went a different route in the fourth, and we'll talk about that. So one, I like the fact that he wasn't just married to um, – that he was willing to go to 11-12. Um, I think that there's probably going to be games where a guy like Miles McBride can be a good option, right? If they have – you know, I mean, Tyrese Maxey dropped 37. They had a different solution for that, but – um, you know, th- like there's 13 guys who can play NBA minutes. That's the strength. And I think if Tibbs starts to do that, that's very encouraging. There's obviously playing Obi and Randall, but he, I mean, that um, that Cam Randall Obi front line, it's technically small ball, but it's not small, right? They're all 6'9 plus. They all have seven foot wingspans. Um, they're all pretty mobile. Um, you know, Randall, I think, is at his best when he can actually switch and defend on the perimeter. <clears throat> So that was good to see. Um, and, you know, like the game before he said, you know, someone it was at a it was kind of a I don't know if it was the most um, congruous response. Is that a word? Cong- I think that's Congress. Is a word, Just right? go with it. Um, to the question is about why Mitchell only got 18 minutes. And he said um, he said he was searching, which a lot of Knicks fans were like, oh, boy, we're screwed. You know, <laughs> he's searching right now um, after three years. But that was a little bit like I was like, yes, we've wanted tips to search. Um, it's one game. Some of it was stuff that we'd wanted to see for a while. Um, but, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. What about you, Matt? I feel like there have been times in the past where Thibodeau has made changes that people want, but it's always been either late or there's another circumstance that drives it. So somebody's been hurt, so he'll make a change. I, I What I can't get past um, is because it's been three years now, even the year that they were really successful under Thibodeau, it became an issue late in the season that he continued to start Alfred Payton when it wasn't just a fan like, I don't like him, start someone else. There was 
so much visual and analytical data showing like they were just if you remember they would they were behind every first quarter and then quickly would come in and they would turn it around and he eventually did make the change but like I, I wrote about this um the other night and I felt like he was kind of doing it last night too when when Tibbs finally pulled Alfred Payton he still started him in game one of the playoffs and game two of the playoffs but he only played him like eight and five minutes so like why would you play someone why would you start someone in a playoff game for five minutes and then pull them unless they're hurt, which Peyton wasn't, or it's kind of your middle finger on some level to people like, all right, I'm going to pull them, but I'm going to pull them my way. Not like when you want me to. And last year, no matter what Randall struggled with, he had just an, uh, I don't know what the expression is. He had, he had endless freedom to fuck around and not find out all season. And if Toppin missed a rotation, he's out. And now this season, he made changes last night. If Mitchell Robinson doesn't get hurt, do we see any of the small ball lineup? I can't say that I that I believe that we would. And therefore, I don't know if this was like, you know, the magical night where you, you think you're going to break up and everything goes right. The Grinch's like, heart is... grew two size. What's that? The Grinch's heart grew two sizes. <laughs> Yeah, basically. Like, okay, like I was going to dump him, but he really did change. He really did show me that he can be the guy that I want him to be. But, like, I don't know if I – I still don't know if I believe that. Um, it was great to see, and I feel like that's just – that's the one part of Thibodeau that, like, if he could just change it, but, like, I I don't believe it yet. I was I was very happy with the game, and, like, someone I saw somewhere wrote, like, I'm not thinking this leads to radical changes, but I am hoping that – Thibodeau learned last night. I have more options than I knew that I did. And there will be other games like tonight when they play Boston. The Celtics, they don't have Robert Williams. The Celtics, two big men at this point are Al Horford and Luke Cornett. Shout out to Mrs. Cornett. She was always very sweet after I wrote recaps about Luke. Um, But that's it. They have Al Horford and Luke Cornett. So there is a night tonight. There is an opportunity tonight to do the same thing that worked. And will he do it? Going into the game, I, I would still put it to fifty fifty. Um, not trying to bring anyone down. I just have yeah. to see more of this before I believe that. Like, but it was exciting. It was very very exciting for a night. Um, yeah, and and I mean I think, um, you know, kind of on that note as well. Um, I think one of the so. I think perimeter defense has been arguably the Knicks' biggest issue besides maybe defensive rebounding. Not two things that are definitely hallmarks of a Tom Thibodeau team. Um, and another interesting thing, it wasn't just that small ball lineup, but he wasn't putting... Uh, he wasn't... Late in the game, who was guarding Tyrese Maxey? It was Cam. Um, and I think that's not something he's gone to a lot, but Cam Reddish was the primary guy. I don't think Max. I think Maxey maybe had one bucket in that late stretch. He had 37 for the game. Even Grimes, I mean, Grimes may not be 100%, but he wasn't the solution that maybe we had hoped. Um, You know, I think that that's something that I'm hoping is kind of a catalyst because I I think Tibbs is probably tired of seeing like every single guard we go up against drop 30, right? It's one thing if it's Donovan Mitchell. I mean, Tyrese Maxey is great too. They've They've had a run of facing good guards, but even Dennis Smith Jr. had a good game against the Knicks, right? So, um, I would hope that that's something that's really kind of chafing Tibbs or whatever. Um, on um, on kind of a more positive note, 
Um, Seth, I wanted to throw this back to you. So um, last night, Obi Toppin was... Uh, I mean, the, Obi Toppin is the most fun thing to talk about, I think, from last night. Um, he was three for six. So that puts him at 44 for his last 101 attempts. So over 100 attempts, which is a little more than a third of his career attempts, he's shooting well over 40% from three. Um, he's been knocking them down this so far this year. And it's not just corner threes. In fact, he actually is worse from the corner. He's weirdly been like 34% or below all three seasons. This year as well, I think he's like, um, I, I, I mean, I think some of his worst misses come from the corner. He has those UFOs that just go over the hoop completely. So maybe it's a perception thing where it's actually worse for him. But um, Seth, you've obviously seen, we talked about this with point guards, but you've obviously seen a lot of draft prospects come and go. Um, you know, Knicks get their hopes up, doesn't pan out. Um, are you buying this from Obi right now? The the outside shot, honestly, um, no. Just like okay. straight up now. Like I, I, I think he's got like he can shoot it when he's open. I think he's proven that you know, to the extent that Julius Randle or Isaiah Hartenstein can shoot an open three, so can he. And that's fine. I don't think he's 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 got an ugly shot. His his feet are weird. He it's a weird release, <laughs> and I'm just not. It's sort of like the opposite of Emmanuel quickly, where like Obi's threes never look like they're going in for me ever. And yeah, but then this season, like half of them have gone in. Um, but what I what has come a long way in a couple years, and what looks legitimate and valid and sustainable to me is. If you close out on a three, he puts the ball on the floor and his ability to do the, you know, the Amari thing of driving slowly and creating and having the touch in a way that Randall does not, RJ mm-hmm. Barrett certainly does not, Brunson does to like get the ball off the glass and just kind of finish like over a contest. And um, he's so athletic and also has that ability to sort of extend diagonally and sideways that like he can make a good look out of anything. And in his rookie season, it seemed like he was doing a lot of the like RJ signature, just like fling the ball at the backboard at 200 miles an hour. And, you know, you can't really see the rim. And now he always manages to get a, a shot where you're like, this, this seems like it should go in when he's moving off the bounce. Mm-hmm. And, um, especially if he can draw fouls doing that, which he hasn't really, but like that should be attainable. Um, and especially if he can mix up the types of looks, the types of ways he's getting that look, whether it's like off the roll or attacking a closeout or just actually catching the ball in the post and sort of spinning, like that stuff looks really great to me. And, you know, he is very much like not just a dunker. Um, and so like, yeah, like he should play if, if that's the only question, like, yeah, he should obviously be playing. Um, I think I am not as like totally enamored with Obi Toppin as maybe the average Knicks fan I see on Twitter. Um, But like, he is a lot of fun and frankly, a great deal of what was missing last season and what made last season torture. And what I worry about this season is just that like, it was bleak. Like it wasn't just that they were losing. They weren't that bad last season. It's that they looked mm-hmm. like they weren't getting along and weren't having fun. And like, even when they were winning, it felt like it was sort of in spite of the, the overall like tenor of the troops, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and Obi Toppin 
because of the way he plays, because of the relationships he seems to have with his teammates, um, he's fun. He's fun and he is an enlivening presence on the court. And um, that obviously stands in contrast at worst to, you know, the guy he's subbing in for. And so um, if nothing else, like I, I enjoy his presence. He is, um, he's, he's interesting and he's fun. And like, I'll take that. That's enough. If the team's mm-hmm. going to win 35 to 40 games, like, yeah, I want to see some Obi Toppin. Yeah. And, and I think especially a team that struggles so much in the half court, yeah. um, his ability to run the floor. Um, and like, I mean, it's, I think people can call it gimmicky, right? But especially with quickly with the outlet passes, like they really look like Brady DeMoss out there, you know, um, because quickly can really hit him like inch perfect. I think for the first time last game, I saw one of those passes get tipped after probably like 50 or 100. And mm-hmm. it was in the right spot. The defender just put his hand up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment. I don't think Obi is an all-star, but I think he's a good energizer guy. I think he's capable of starting. Um, I also think there's another young guy who is pretty polarizing on Nick's Twitter, who had a really good game last night. That's Cam Reddish. Um, I was actually even more impressed with his defense. Um, I mean, we know we've seen him have good offensive games before. Um, like I said, they put him on maxi late. That was good. Um, there was a play, I think Urson Demir clipped this, but one of the bugaboos I've had with Cam is that on defense, he would get lost around screens or he'd take like weird angles or circuitous routes unnecessarily. And then he would just get, you know, his defender would, or this man would have like a, a free run to the rim. And when he was on Maxi, he was he was actually doing this thing with his leg. Like he's he's got these long strides. He was getting his leg around the screen, using that flexibility to, to which is, I mean, if he does that, like that's a really important defensive weapon. Um, he actually finished the game with a team high plus nineteen. Um, to put it in perspective, the only other person in a double figures and plus minus was Brunson. Obviously, um, you know, single game plus minus your mileage may vary, but. Cam was four for four, one for one from three, two for... He had pretty much a, a flawless game. Three assists, zero turnovers. Um, you know, Matt, what... Um, you know, I mean, that's again, it's like kind of a... Is, are you buying this? Um, he's still only got 15 minutes, so we'll see how much trust he really earned from Tibbs. But he did close. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, perhaps the most polarizing player on Nick's Twitter. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on how Cam looked last night, Matt? I was very excited that Thibodeau basically used him as a closer um, because in each half, I think he played, he closed each half, didn't really play otherwise. And um, Cam Reddish, Cam Reddish is going to be the death of me because I cannot, I can't survive the like, like nights like last night, he's my favorite player. He looks so great. He does things on both ends. He has an athleticism. He makes certain kinds of shots and moves that no one else on this team can make. Maybe Obi to some extent, but like there was one where Cam was he caught a pass in the corner and drove and this kind of funky like Euro step offhand toss up lay and it went in like no one else can do that. But every time I am ready to like plant my flag on Reddish Land, then he does something that you know takes a shot that has J.R. Smith like cursing. Like it just you don't know what this person is thinking. What is what he doing, doing, folks? Yeah, yeah, he does that. He has those moments, but he has them every game. But I, I've, I've said this before. I think Tom Thibodeau likes to build a very structured kind of team, and Cam Reddish 
possesses a kind of chaos energy that not many Knicks do. I think Obi does also to a, a lighter extent, and I think it's good for the Knicks. So whenever Cam plays well, I'm really happy um, because I think he has strengths that, that no one else on the team does, and because, quite frankly, he's still very young, and you traded a first-round pick for him, and it would be nice to see, like, it, you know, more of, do you have something here? Um, and when he plays like he did last night, he's a real difference maker. You can You can defend with him. One, two, three, maybe a small four, and he does it. And and I was really encouraged by Cam. Something else that I was encouraged by, um, that I'm still getting used to this season. In every win this year, there's been a point. I'm so focused on like, especially if I'm recapping, I'm so focused on like, how's Randall doing? How's Obi doing? How, how's RJ doing? There's all these main headlines that like I'm trying to check off and make sure they're not like the story of the night. And there's always at some point in the fourth quarter, I will remember all of a sudden like, oh, Brunson is here too. And Brunson will just like <laughs> yeah. calm a possession down. He'll make the right read. You know, he he's, he's so excellent at going into moves where if you had never seen him play before, you're like, what the hell? Where's he going? But he, the stutters and the hezzies the and the fades, like he makes it work. Um, I'm very relieved in a number of games this year that when it comes down to it, there's a guy running the show who really does know what he's doing. Um, it's not a high bar, but I think, and I exclude Chauncey Billups because he was only here like two weeks. Like, I think Brunson has to be the best point guard they've had skill-wise since Marbury. Um, and you put I'm him over Felton. Give... I mean, Felton's the only other close comparable, right? And yeah, I, would yeah, I think Brunson's better there. than, I think Brunson is better than Felton because he's a, I think he's a better create like one-on-one um, kind of creator. I'm not saying Steph was like as Steph was weird because he was talented, but there was this sort of dark cloud that came with him. Um, but just in terms of your point guard has the ball and you you can relax because like there's an adult with the ball. Like I feel that way with Brunson. Um, Seth, you have followed the point guard barrenness for many many years. What have your um, vibes been so far about Jalen Brunson? I. I agree with what you said. I, I, I love watching him play and I love, I, I think, you know, the, the profile on Jalen Brunson, his MO is, you know, he's really solid and makes the right play and is a team player and settles you down. And that's absolutely the case. I do love that. He is also like pretty nasty like he he also gets pissed off and is like no i'm taking the shot now Mm -hmm. like he gets Mm -hmm. into one-on-one battles with point guards and i like that i want a little bit of that i like that he's a little bit of an asshole out there Um, Mm -hmm. and he has there there are several players on the knicks who have a good sort of like macro understanding of the shape of a game and the course of the events and momentum and like, you know, this guy really needs a shot right now. Or like we've taken, you know, six possessions in a row where we did the same kind of thing. We need to do something different or like the pace is getting on it or whatever. And then there are other guys. I think Cam Reddish is one of the best and most fascinating examples of this who are really good in the moment problem solvers. Like Cam Reddish I think has no idea what the score is in any given moment and (laughs) really does not, does not play like he has any respect for context and momentum and all that stuff. But 
like, you know, like sort of like a bouldering problem. If you just throw him into a moment of like, you are running full speed, there are three, three people in front of you and you need to figure out how to make this not embarrassing. He can solve that um, mm-hmm. really like brilliantly. He is very like clever, but not always sort of like wise about the situation of the game. He is not a coach on the floor. Brunson is a coach on the floor and also has that thing where, again, you throw him in a situation, there's four seconds on the shot clock. You have someone nine inches taller than you in front of you. You need, we need a shot here, figure it out. You know, you don't need to worry about the course of the game or how this is going to look, just get a good shot off. And he has that too. Um, Mm -hmm. He, he is, yes, extremely fun and gratifying to watch. I really trust him. And I, I think Marbury would be my closest companion. Obviously, very different kind of player, very different reputation and attitude, um, mm-hmm. especially if we're talking about like, you know, later career Marbury. But like, it has been a while since point guard or not, since the Knicks had a guy where yeah. when shit got tight, you were like, just give him the ball, just give him the ball, and like, you know, whatever happens, ha- I trust him to lead this to where it ought to go. Um, and yeah, Brunson is that. And I, he, I think he really like adds upside to the team and I, I've yet to see him like truly improve the people around him. And he's, he's got, he's fighting an uphill battle there. Cause he's got, he's playing with guys who tend to like self-create and tend to, um, sort of like diffuse a good pass if you throw it to them sometimes <laughs> um, and that's why i'd like to see more you know uh like obi Toppin is a guy where you like put him in a position to do something and he'll do it and julius randall is not always going to take the shot you give him and so that's why some of the lineup yeah. experimentation we saw on friday night is appealing especially around brunson because like he'll put, he'll put you in a good position Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I really love him. I've loved the experience. So far. I don't feel like he hasn't even played that well. Like he hasn't really been making his shot. I, I feel like his box score lines mm-hmm. are always pretty decent, but like, especially early in games, you see him get to his spots and then miss pretty often. Um, but I've had a great time watching him and it's a, it's a really nice change of pace that has, this season has already been pretty annoying, but like he's, he's been pretty consistently satisfying to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think I think at times I felt like I want him to be even more aggressive mm-hmm. and look for a shot a little bit more. Um, I actually went to that Hawks game, and you know it was obviously a disaster by the fourth. And um, you know Brunson scored. My buddy looked up and he said, "Brunson has twenty, but um, that's a really quiet twenty. And it wasn't a quiet twenty. Sometimes you say that about a great player, and you're like, man, he could just sleep his way to twenty points. This felt like a game where you know the Knicks were playing two you know, quality guards who really went off, especially Murray, obviously. We could have used, and the offense was floundering for most of the third and fourth quarter, we could have used someone to put his impact. I still think, to your point, Seth, he's trying to figure out how to balance that. Um, I do think it's another reason why perhaps staggering him and playing him more with, with some off-ball players. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really love the minutes he gets with quickly. Uh, as Grimes comes back, I think that'll be good because uh, Grimes is a guy like you hit him and give him a small window and he's going to take that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think with Brunson, those are um, and he's he's still, he's only shooting thirty one percent from three. Uh, he's taking some more pull ups, but not a dramatically higher amount. And he's thirty seven percent for his career. So um, that I would um, I would I would expect to go up as the season wears on. 
actually, I, I misspoke. He is taking 60% of his threes or pull-ups. So um, I think we all wanted him to do that. So far, it hasn't borne any fruit. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with, with Brunson, I, I think you both hit the nail pretty much on the head. Um, I think in terms of like the maturity and kind of just knowing like how to pull the strings, um, you know, what you were talking about, that's something that, you know, we didn't mention Mello, right, when talking about kind of the overall talented players. That was a guy who could create his own shot and could do all of those things. But to your point, um, in terms of knowing, you know, how to change things up or, uh, you know, taking into account the way the game is going and all of that, um, you know, the point guardy things. And I, I mean, I think that at times it definitely looked like Chauncey Billups helped Melo a lot with that. And, um, you know, besides maybe a season of Felton, he didn't really have that um, during his time here. Switching gears a little bit, sorry. Um, switching gears here a little bit. So we would probably still be talking about this if the Knicks hadn't won last night. So, um, but, you know, there was, there's an article in Bleacher Report about Tibbs being potentially being fired. It was actually really good, um, or, you know, the case for firing Tibbs. It's actually a really good article from Dan Devine. Um, I think that's um, from Bleach Report. And um, no, I recommend sorry, it's reading a different it. Dan. It's like Dan F. It's a different Dan. Sorry, not Dan Devine. Dan, yeah. Fasala or something like that. I'll find it. Dan Favale, Favale, Favale. Favale, thank you. Thank you. Dan Favale. Yeah, my bad. Um, so, But I highly recommend people checking it out. But all of the chatter about it afterwards was, um, you know, well, does this actually change anything for the Knicks and the roster? You know, the situation there is bad. Couldn't get a lot of people to nail specifics. And I take a little bit. I, I don't think the front office is without blame. But, you know, a couple of years ago when Fizdale got hired, you know, that famous quote from Woj where it was like, you know, it's a rudderless roster and all of that, which obviously held some truth. Right. Um, you know, the Knicks had signed Bobby Portis and Taj. And, um, you know, it was like the 85 power forward thing. Um, but Mike Miller came and made them respectable. Um, that's not to say the roster didn't have massive issues. It probably was helped a little bit by the Marcus Morris trade because that opened up things. But even things like using Bobby Portis, um, I mean, obviously Milwaukee and, and him, you have to give him a ton of credit, taking it to another level, like how they use him as a defender. But you could see some of the seeds of that where, you know, it's not a, he's not a great rim protector, but, you know, like he can switch a little bit. He's got decent mobility for that position. Um, but so I was thinking about it. It's like, is this roster really misconstructed? I, don't, I mean, there's talent on the roster. It lacks high-end talent. I think the criticism you can make is, should they have traded for Donovan Mitchell, right? And I think a lot of people uh, made the argument over the offseason, he's not really an MVP caliber player, doesn't play defense. So far, both of those assertions, and again, seven games or whatever, appear to be untrue. Um, you know, he's playing like an MVP in Cleveland. His defense has actually been better. I do think they're constructed in such a way that they can complement him better with you know having two elite defensive bigs. Um, but um, so Seth, I'll ask you two questions. One, at this point, do you wish the Knicks had pulled the trigger if it was something like three unprotected firsts and like one of RJ and Grimes and maybe another like OB or something? Um, do you have you know maybe some non-buyers remorse there? And two, in general, how much do you blame the front office versus Tibbs in terms of this roster construction? Well, starting with the second question, I, you know, this isn't like a 60 win roster, no matter who's coaching it, or probably even a 50 win roster, but I don't think it's lacking really anywhere. If anything, the Knicks have a too many guys problem, you know, where like a a consolidating move 
Mitchell or otherwise, or frankly, an injury like solves um, planning issues. Obviously, injuries aren't good, but sometimes they make they force you into decisions that you should have made anyway, and they limit your options and thus limit sort of decision paralysis. Um, but no, like what are, the Knicks are not. They don't have a superstar anywhere, but they are not lacking for like starter caliber, starter caliber or NBA caliber or second unit caliber talent at any position in any role. Um, that was not the case when Fizdale was coaching. You described the, you know, the five power forward setup. Like, I, I think it's fair to quibble with the front office for the manner in which they do business. And it is absolutely fair to quibble with the front office for like, you know, should they, should they have made this big move? Should they have drafted this guy or that guy? All that stuff. Um, but what ended up hitting the floor was a perfectly decent NBA roster that's like sound. It makes sense in a way that Knicks rosters mm-hmm. in the Rose era and obviously prior certainly have not. Um mm-hmm. Regarding Mitch, and so and so, I guess to answer that question, like I think Tom Thibodeau's rigidity, his tendency, sort of to coach like he's trying to win an argument more than a game, his 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 sort of lack of desperation and apparent unwillingness to throw shit at the wall and and just find a way to win. Um, you know, I don't think it's the difference between the team being great and not, but it is the difference between a couple wins here and a couple wins there. Like, I I, I do think so. Um, and I don't think the team is necessarily, like, good enough to be thinking so long. I don't know. Like, he, like, thinks long-term sometimes with his decisions in a way where it's like, well, I really want to build this lineup up, you know. I need them to figure it out. And it's like, I don't know if that's the kind of long-term thinking I would apply to this roster. It would be more to like get players to develop than to like get lineups to be coherent. But anyway, anyway, to answer the Mitchell question, I mean, listen, I don't feel one way about it, but watching Donovan, watching Donovan Mitchell tear up the Knicks the other night, I on one hand thought like, God, he's so awesome and so fun. I think this one I watch him in interviews too. Like he's just like a I would like to root for him. He's he's really cool yeah. and likable. He's I know he gets I think in the past has really been aggravating to watch if you're rooting for him, but like in between that and at other times like obviously when he was dropping 40 whatever on the Knicks, like he is really really fun and energizing and smart and athletic and creative and that's awesome. And at the same time, I was thinking like he would. This would not look the same on this next round. The Cavs have the Cavs are such a awesome setting. They are to be the type of player Donovan Mitchell is. You know, you just like look at the front court that you look at the people who are standing in the middle of the floor when he's making these moves, and look at the backline defense he has behind him, and. I, ju- I don't think it would look this good if he was with the Knicks roster. And I don't think necessarily that the Knicks would be that much better with him, even if he was playing this well, which is sort of sounds ridiculous, but like the, the Cavs are kind of perfect. You know, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know that they're a contender necessarily, but like that is just a like beautiful basketball environment. What a wonderful roster that is being like, rotated to its maximum capability 
And for a player who is imperfect and needs a good setting the way Mitchell does, like that makes so much sense for him. And I don't know that it's, I don't know that it would be so uncomplicated and carefree in New York as it would be in Cleveland. I, I don't know. So like, I somehow both think like, God damn, it would be cool if he was here. And also like, probably wouldn't be this cool. <laughs> that is wisdom right there. That's what we call wisdom. I do not have non-buyer's remorse. Is the short <laughs> um, Who was the last? This yeah, is... no... Go ahead, Stace. Go, Go ahead. ahead. No, I think we have a little bit of a lag. So sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. So I wanted to know, um, when you were talking about Brunson earlier, Seth, and your description of him, I realized as you were speaking that even though it's very early, like I trust right now that Brunson is the leader of this team, at least on the floor. I don't, I can't speculate about locker room, any things, but on the floor, he is a leader. And I can't remember the last, maybe like this, the veterans on the 13 team, like Kurt Thomas was there, but like in terms of someone who played a meaningful role and meaningful minutes for a Nick team, I cannot remember the last player that I looked at and thought like, okay, that's our leader. Like literally going back to probably Patrick Ewing. I can't think, I, I didn't think of Alan Houston as a leader. He was a great player, but he wasn't like a leader. Um, Steph was not a leader. Mello was great. I, I don't know. I mean, that's just how I feel. I wonder if you, have you ever, Who's the last Nick that you ever have you ever felt watching the Nick like okay that's our leader and when was the last time you felt that way about someone? I guess it partially depends what you mean by leader. Like if it's you know this dude's going to say the right things off the floor and in the locker room you know not in the locker room but like he just seems like he has that you know attitude. I don't have a great example. But yeah. What what I what I am most looking for is that on the floor organizing uh, presence. And I, th- which isn't necessarily a one-to-one overlap with like being the best player most likely to get a bucket. Like, you know, Carmelo Anthony obviously was that, and it was so refreshing for a while anyway to suddenly have a guy after years without it who like could be a leader in the way where like the team's falling apart, just give him the ball and like something might something good might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wasn't a point guard and he wasn't going to dictate the entire pace and flow of the game with a coach's level of, you know, comprehension of the whole story like we were talking about. Um, I think Marbury was that. Like Marbury obviously had Mm. massive, really important cultural critical issues off the floor. Um, And his play deteriorated while he was in New York. But for a few years there... um, I, I think that on the floor, on a really bad series of rosters, he was a guy who, A, had that mellow presence where it's like, we just need a bucket. We're playing against a set defense, give him the ball, and like he's going to get a good look. Mm-hmm. And also, I think he, he had a obviously a point guard sense of the flow of the game and you know who to get the ball in a given moment and how things were going. I think he had like... A, a sort of narrative wisdom and like a, a, a feel for momentum and stuff like that. Um, not to say he didn't like take bad shots, not to say Brunson doesn't also do that, but um, I think it was him. He was a leader on the floor. I think he was a, a competent point guard 
and someone who like commanded the respect and deference of the other players around him. Um, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And who, who, you know, just as a fan, I think this is maybe the best test of this as a fan, you can tell who's the leader because it's the guy we're like, just give him the ball. And like, I, and I think (laughs) at least we'll get a good look out of this. Um, I felt that way about Randall for a season for that one good season where it was like, whatever it'll, whatever it, whatever happens, like I'm okay with it being him. Um, but Marbury, mm-hmm. I think was that consistently, consistently Mar- mellow was that for a little bit. It's just that like, like Randall, you could be pretty sure that his idea of the best outcome for this play is that he takes a shot. Um, but that wasn't the case with Marbury. It's not the case with Brunson. I think he's, he's going to make the best choice in a given moment. Um, I don't know. I, I digressed there, but I think my answer to that question is Stefan Marbury. I think that his like well-earned reputation as a weirdo clouded our idea of who he was as a player, but like he was a very solid, like reliable player when he was on the Knicks for mm-hmm. several years. Mm-hmm. His first couple yeah. of years. I, he was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's pretty fair. Um, I would add if we're expanding to defensive leadership, the guy that came to mind for me was Tyson Chandler, um, Absolutely. particularly on that 2012 team. Um, and I think like when that team really deteriorated, um, I like not that during that season, but the following season, you know, when things went south, I think the biggest to me litmus test was that at, at, at a point Tyson Chandler just checked out on defense yeah, and you could see the, the impact he had been having. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that like next to Melo, I think he was very important. Again, I don't know about the locker room stuff, but Melo to me always seemed like a guy who was more of a lead by example guy than kind of that coach on the floor. Whereas Chandler gave you a little bit of that, right? You are also I'll tell you, yeah, Ewing was too that way. J- Jason Kidd was kind of that for a little bit, as weird as that is, and as badly as that <laughs> ended. That yeah. so J- Jason Kidd really like. I mean, obviously, this is he who did. he was when he was great, but like he was such an organizing player, and mm-hmm. at no point was the best player on the floor for those teams. But like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. give him the ball, and he'll find the best player on the floor for any given situation. Yeah, Kidd Kidd was like fifty percent from three, and then nosedived, and then didn't something similar happen with Mike Bibby? Like. That was when they had like a million forty-year-old players. Right? Bibby was the year before. Early wiped from my memory. I have no idea. <laughs> Bibby was, uh, Bibby yeah, was that... twenty twelve, and that was the year that they tried to start. They were starting. Baron Davis was there, but he got hurt. Yeah. Um. Well, they. You're telling the story a... of Jeremy Lin. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They played. Shumpert played point guard for a little bit. Yep. Aaron Davis had an elbow infection. Mike Bibby got hurt. Mm-hmm. Do what Tony Douglas does. He was yeah, starting. Tony to Douglas gave it a shot. <laughs> Fine, fuck it. We'll play the Harvard kid. Like, yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I remember like all of those. Sheed was on the. He was on the the next year, right? With Woodson. He was thirteen. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's spot on with Brunson. So. I have one last question. Um, I'll direct it to you, Stacy, because I, I, as I thought about this, I was specifically like trying to imagine what your, like what your counter would be to me, because I feel like I, because my Nick emotions are out of control, I think I'm overreacting to certain things. So I want you to talk me off the ledge on this one thing. 
Um, RJ Barrett has had probably his two best games, I would say, of the year recently, or two of his better games um, in the last couple of games. And I feel like Barrett is a victim of a roster that is not... I don't think the starters work to his to his ultimate benefit. I've thought since Barrett came in the league that Barrett and Randall, to, in some weird way, are kind of redundant. And when you re-sign Mitchell Robinson for four years... And Brunson is a great player, but not like a floor spacer. Like you keep you keep putting RJ like more and more in a phone booth to try to make his moves when the guy needs like some space. And the other night RJ had a rough night, and I found myself thinking, like, okay. RJ is not a plus shooter. He's not a plus passer. He his touch is negative. He's not a plus defender. He doesn't have plus athleticism. He doesn't have plus speed. I know that like there's more there than that because I've watched RJ Barrett for months on end play like very well for this team. But now that he's making twenty five million a year instead of like seven, um, it always used to be when I thought about it like if you have to trade Randall or Barrett, you trade Randall. Randall is older. Um, Randall is is problematic. I would say I am not concerned um, just because what this team needs him to be, I think is different for me than um, there's people on Twitter. And I don't think this is a, a crazy opinion. I just think it's a little bit overstating it. Who's like, we're like basically RJ Barrett needs to become a star or this roster doesn't make sense. I think he can be, if he turns into a third option on a good team, if he turns into something like, I mean, this is an overused thing now for every wing who's trying to find himself. That was an early pick. But yes, you look at the the arc of Andrew Wiggins, like he's not, well, I mean, that might even be, at, at times he looked like their second best player last year, right? Um, but something like that kind of a career arc, I think that's fine for, for RJ Barrett. Um, I think that, um, I can't believe, remember if it was Schwinn or someone posted a stat where over the last few games, I think the number of drives that RJ passed out of, the percentage went from like 45 to like 65. So um, one of the, like, the thing is, shots are going to, he's going to miss shots, right? Um, the, the question is, and like, he doesn't have the greatest touch at the rim. The question is not, you know, how many makeable shots does he miss? The question to me has always been two things, right? That he has control over. Number one is um, how often are you, are you forcing up shots, right? How often are you taking that like fall away, fade away, as opposed to going through a guy? How often are you going up against three guys? Um, and you know, you have someone wide open in the corner. There was a really bad clip from the Hawks game. He went one on three in a fast break. Obi like has his hands up and like, I mean, none of these guys really show a lot of frustration at each other, but you can tell when they're like, man, why didn't I get the ball there? Right. Um, and those are the kinds of plays that were really, that I think over the last couple of games he's reduced, um, he's passed out more which is encouraging. Um, I don't think he's ever going to be Luka Doncic, but he's more than capable of being an effective drive-in kick option. 
And the other thing that has been just extremely disappointing to me, especially from a player like him who we know is so locked in, has such a professional mindset, is the defense this year. Um, you know, they asked him, they gave him a tough assignment against John Morant. I understand he's put in a position where he's covering for um, two undersized defenders, uh, two poor defenders in the backcourt. Jalen fights, but, you know, he's got his shortcomings and so potentially three bad defenders, depending on what version of Julius Randle decides to show up on that end. But some of the the misrotations, some of the lack of effort has just been inexcusable for RJ. Um, I don't expect that to last. Um, and then to your other point about, you know, the salary does change things. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. He's shooting 24% from three, um, which on one hand, I don't expect. He's a career 35% three-point shooter. I would expect that to revert to the mean um, over the course of the season. But how long is going to last, right? He, he Last year, he came in, and for half the season, he was shooting poorly. He was terrific after that. But, um, but you know, it was too little too late. So we're going to have to see more there. Um, and as, if he can just get back to, get back to, you know, hitting threes at, like, what he has, you know, league, which is kind of league average on above average volume, you know, about six attempts a game, um, you know, that would go a long way. Um, as well as just um, just continuing to make just make the simple play out on your drives, right? You don't always have to finish, especially since we have other guys who we can play off of. Um, on a positive note, so far in a small sample, he's up to seventy seven percent from the free throw line, which has been kind of a bugaboo for him. Um, I believe a couple of guys, I think Ace Zillow did a nice breakdown, like he's releasing the ball a little bit higher above his head on the free throw line, so he's not blocking his line of vision. You know, maybe that's something you can hold on to. Um, so we'll see. And I think the last thing is a lot of people have mentioned this, but, um, you know, staggering him and Randall seems like a must. I think he feels he looks much more comfortable. Um, I think a lineup, I think he plays well with Brunson because Brunson is also a good off ball mover, but he's thrived with quickly, I think, for most of his time with the Knicks. So Brunson, quickly, RJ, OB, and, um, and, you know, one of the bigs, I think that kind of a lineup can work. Or even if you, you know, um, maybe even go with a small ball lineup with Obi at the five and throw Cam in there. I think RJ and Cam have some good chemistry. Those kind of things will help RJ and I think will get him to trust the kick out more than maybe playing like a guy with with Randall who doesn't necessarily relocate as much as, as those kind of things. Um, and, um, and in the fourth last night when they went small, I think that helped. So um, that was kind of a long-winded response. But to answer your questions, um, my concerns are more around, can he bring it on defense every night? Because we really need him to. And can he make better decisions? The rest, the shooting will come. I think he's capable of being a league average finisher, especially if the shot selection improves. Those are my two big concerns. Um, <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask. Uh, no, RJ, RJ Barrett's fine. I agree with a lot of what you just said. A lot of it, including just the starting point of it is not, I think, productive or realistic to give him the goal of being an all-star first option type player. I don't think that that gets you the best version of RJ Barrett. I've never thought that. Um, and I also latch very much onto the fact that his free throw looks completely fixed to me. That gives me genuine hope. Uh, and I am not 
someone who's always felt particularly particularly hopeful about RJ Barrett. Cool. Well, before we get out of here, um, Matt, I know you wanted to ask uh, Seth a little bit about the stuff he's doing at Secret Base. Uh, I I do. Um, I don't know when this podcast is going up, but on November 9th, um, we are publishing something that is new and different for me, which is that I got to work with um, the legend John Boyce, as well as Alex Rubenstein and Kofi Eboa on... We basically made a movie about the 2012 Charlotte Bobcats. Uh, it is part of John's John and Alex's Dorktown series. So it's a lot of like charts and, you know, smooth jazz music and uh, nerd shit. But it's like a full, I think it's almost two hours, um, all, all about that team. And if people are not familiar with the 2012 Bobcats, you know, the lockout season won seven games. That's arguably and in some objective ways, the worst season in the history of NBA basketball. And, you know, that was all under the ownership and governorship of Mike, literally Michael Jordan. Um, so I think it's, it is a <laughs> compelling story. There's a lot of interesting characters and it was really, really fun to write and very different from what I usually get to do. I mean, it's not different in the sense that it's fucking YouTube video. That's what I always do, but um, different kind of like format and storytelling style that I'm used to when I'm, I'm in charge. So that was a lot of fun. And that will, we're actually doing like a, the using the YouTube premiere feature where like, it's sort of like airs live for the first run um, on, on the night of November 9th, assuming all goes well. So um, definitely not for everyone, but if, if uh, someone is, feels um, intrigued by the idea of sitting through a movie length portion of content about the 2012 Charlotte Bobcats, that will that will be, exist as of this coming week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is there is a punchline to the whole thing. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.